Hey friends, before I start this episode, I just wanted to make a few quick notes. First, I want to thank all of you who contacted me after the last episode to see how I'm doing. That was so kind. I really appreciate having so many wonderful people out there who are concerned for my health. I've already begun working with a cardiologist and so far everything looks really good. No cause for major alarm, so please be assured everything's going really well with my heart and I feel very fortunate to be able to say that. I also wanted to thank those of you who've rated and reviewed on the Apple Podcasts app. That means so much to me and I'm so glad to see that people are enjoying the show. Thank you for taking the time from the bottom of my heart. All my listeners are so awesome and I really, really appreciate each and every one of you. Finally, just a quick heads up that in the first segment of this episode, before I get into the interview, I do briefly discuss some of my history with mental health, including suicidal ideation, and I didn't want that to like ambush anyone and ruin your whole day, so please be aware that it's a subject I briefly touch on in this episode. All right, on with the show. Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I've always been the kind of person who just falls in love very easily with everyone. I mean, okay, not everyone, <laughs> but I do feel like I've been in love more times than most people seem to experience in a standard human life. Do I sound like an alien when I say things like standard human life? Probably. Maybe this is why uh, I don't historically get to experience anyone else being in love with me. In fact, despite the literally countless times I've been in love with other people, there's only been one time when someone has loved me in return. And that's my husband, Paul, who's my second husband, by the way. So yeah, I'm not sure why Eros decided to be the driving force of my whole entire existence and yet be so distinctly one-sided. That seems kind of unfair, to be honest. But what are you gonna do? You know, life's a game and you have to play with whatever hand fate deals you. And fate dealt me the hand of constantly being in love and not being loved in return. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Oh, I've been in love several times before. I got so I could recognize the symptoms. Several times? Mm-hmm. And each time I thought I'd found my Prince Charming. Most people fall in love quite a few times in their lives. I used to kind of curse my luck that I could and did fall in love so easily with so many people because I used to find it really, really painful to love someone and not receive any love back from them. When I was younger, that experience was tough. But you know, like most things we experience when we're young, I just didn't have the right frame on the situation, you know? Like I didn't yet understand how to look at these situations in a way that changed the narrative about love itself. 
I think of all the people I've ever been in love with, the one who stands out the most to me in memory is Anton. Oh, do you remember this picture? The captain of the football team. That was two or three years ago. He never knew how much I loved him. I guess he never knew I existed at all. I'm a little embarrassed admitting any of this, even today when I'm 42 years old, because I think I learned early on that I should feel a lot of shame along with my love, because uh, being in love never worked out well for me. It always, without fail, ended in heartbreak. I mean, except for with Paul. That's the one time it has gone well. And to be honest, I've spent all 12 years of this relationship just assuming that it can end at any time, because that's what happens to all my relationships. I get dumped for a woman who's actually good looking. But this was already a firmly established pattern in my life by the time I was 20 years old, which was when I met Anton. Oh god, I hope he never listens to this goddamn podcast, because even though I think I am objectively a catch these days, I mean, I get to say I'm a best-selling author now, that's pretty cool, right? But there's still this huge part of me that's absolutely mortified over the thought of anyone knowing that I was ever in love with them, because, well, let's just say I have spent the vast majority of my life being the very last person anyone would pick for a romantic partner, and I guess I feel like someone would be offended, maybe, if they knew that I'd ever been in love with them. So like, I can feel, I can feel my face turning red while I talk about this. It's secondhand embarrassment for Anton. Like, I'm sorry, Anton. If you ever happen to listen to this dumb podcast, I'm sorry to have to break this news to you, but I was so intensely, horribly, heartbreakingly in love with you. And I know that's not what anybody wants to hear from me. Honestly, though, I was in love with everything at that age. I really enjoyed my late teens and my early 20s, like, before I ended up with my first husband. Just being on my own and building my own life that was completely designed to my own tastes. It was the first time my reality was wholly under my control and no one else's. I mean, within reason. I was insanely poor, as most people are when they first get started with an independent adult life. And I'd already grown up poor, so like to find myself in even worse poverty as a young adult was challenging. <laughs> but you know, I rose to the occasion pretty well. I'm proud of myself for being resourceful as a super poor 20 year old. My best trick was that uh, my mom never used her Costco membership anymore. So I stole her Costco card since I knew she'd never miss it. And every morning I'd go put in a bunch of job applications and then I'd just go to Costco and like flash the membership card really fast to get in. And I'd walk around Costco from like 11 a.m. until 3 p.m. pretending to shop, just circulating through the store because every hour they would have new people come out with food samples. So I'd just like graze on sample sausage and crackers and little pieces of Hot Pockets and muffins and shit. This was how I ate before I had a job. I couldn't afford to buy food, so I haunted Costco and pretended like I was shopping and just ate free samples to avoid starvation. You young punks go to the movies a couple of times, do a little necking and you think you're in love. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. All I wanted to do was ask. You don't have to get sore about it, do you? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Jack, but, but look at it this way. You just haven't been around enough to know what love really is. I was living in Bellingham at that time. It's this very small city in northern Washington state. It's like 20 miles from the Canadian border. 
There's not much to Bellingham, but God, I love that place. I just adore it. It has this very particular character to it. And when I say it has character, I don't mean the kind of character that draws tourists or anything like that. No one would have the least affection for Bellingham unless they were actually from Bellingham or if they'd spent like a significant portion of their life there, like I did. That's the only way you love that city. But if you love it, then you really love it. There's just something about it as is the case with a lot of towns in the Pacific Northwest. There's just something about it. One of the very few regrets in my life involves that city and those years I spent there. And this is my number one regret for sure. The big one. Bellingham used to have this really great coffee shop called Stewart's. It was in this cool old brick building with high ceilings and this really like artsy, relaxed vibe. They did open mics there and poetry readings and this apartment came up for rent right above Stewart's. I went and looked at the apartment and I ended up not taking it because the bathroom was really weird and narrow and I am intensely claustrophobic and I just couldn't handle being in that bathroom. Like the door opened all weird and you had to squeeze in sideways. This bathroom was clearly an afterthought. It was so poorly designed. But from the moment I turned that apartment down, I kid you not, every day of my life afterwards, up until this day still, I kicked myself. I should have rented that apartment. Cause can you imagine a better origin story for a literary novelist? Living in some shitty old loft apartment above the hippest coffee shop in the whole region where like poets come from miles around to do open mics. What was I thinking? If I'd seized the moment and lived above Stewart's, I would have focused on my writing much more determinedly from a younger age. I think it would actually have been easier for me to establish my career. And I think I'd be much farther along than I am today. I definitely would not have married my first husband, without a doubt. God, I should have rented that fucking apartment. I love you, Nora. Do you love me? Oh, I don't know, Jeff. You're the only girl I've dated in, in two months. But man, I used to just get my dog on his leash every night. I had a whippet named Flame. Oh, I miss that dog every day. He was such a good boy. And I would just stroll around the streets of Bellingham at night, just me and Flame, looking at all the weirdos and the lights from the bars downtown, thinking about my life, what I wanted my life to be like, what kind of world I was going to create for myself now that I was like out there doing it on my own. I was just in love with everything, with life, with myself, with my dog, with the city with the weirdos and the bar lights, all of it. Everything at that age in that place was this constant state of limerent thrill. I had really started diving into contemporary literature. Most high school kids, especially back in the 90s when I was in high school, you know, you read some classics, you read Gatsby, which is weird because no child has the life experience to contextualize anything in Gatsby, but whatever. I guess our teachers were trying. You read Shakespeare, which is fine, it's fine, but you don't really read contemporary lit at that age unless you actively and consciously seek it out. And when I was 19, I discovered Douglas Copeland and my life changed forever. I still absolutely love Copeland's work. His books were seminal for me. They are the medium in which the seeds of my own creativity and my own artistic vision as a writer germinated. 
which is good and right because I came of age in the 90s and Copeland was like the author who was writing about what life was really like right then in that moment, in that decade, you know, recovering from the Cold War but still haunted by its apocalyptic imagery, bewildered by the rapid proliferation of technology, already sensing this changing world to come and mourning the world he'd known as a kid which was so obviously and catastrophically different from this new era which anyone with half a brain in their head could already see was going to be so radically different from the world that was passing away. Everything about Copeland's work excited and horrified me. He was doing this inventive stuff that I'd never seen before, had never even realized literature could do. Generation X was the first of his books I'd read, and I was just enchanted by the layout of the book, like the design of it. It had these funny little illustrations and sidebars kind of slapped onto the page right next to this novel, you know, a, a fictional story that was also presented like a textbook or like an instructional manual. I couldn't get enough of it. I tore through everything I could find by Douglas Copeland. Everything. I searched the Bellingham Library for copies of the Canadian magazines he would sometimes publish in, just like desperate for any new scrap of his work. Like one sentence. I just wanted one more fucking sentence written by this god because nothing else i read could make me feel so intensely i was absolutely like a junkie chasing a fix just like frantic for some copeland to shoot into my veins one of the things i enjoyed so much about being in bellingham was the fact that i was pretty close to vancouver which was where copeland lived and sometimes on my weekends i would take my dog and drive across the border and just go walk around vancouver just like walk the streets go to the parks just be there absorbing the same atmosphere that my hero absorbed and i always kind of had this secret fantasy that like somehow i would run into him and like meet him and we'd become friends, and then Douglas Copeland would take me under his wing and teach me how to do what he did. Not just write, but write in such a way that I could make people love me. He has this short story collection, Polaroids from the Dead. It was published in 1996, I think. And it was the second of his books I ever read. There's this one story, an essay really, because it's not fictional. Traffic stopped leading up to the Lionsgate Bridge, and nobody knew what was going on, why no cars were moving. And Copeland got out of his car and walked a little way towards the bridge, and he saw that there was someone hanging on to the side of it, thinking about jumping off, thinking about ending their life. And this bearded man got out of a white Cadillac with a trumpet, and he climbed up onto the hood of his car, and he pointed his horn at the person on the bridge, and he played. The song was Stranger on the Shore, and the man with the trumpet got to the end of the song, and the person on the bridge climbed down to safety, and Douglas Copeland got back into his car, and traffic kept moving. Sometimes I would sit and just stare at the Lionsgate Bridge for hours, and it felt like Copeland's writing was that song. His writing was my stranger on the shore, cutting through all the static, and calling me down from the precipice to carry on with the business of living. Well, in January of 2000, I was still pretty broke and still mostly living off of Costco samples and, as I mentioned in a previous episode, raiding my grandpa's Y2K stash for sustenance. 
I had a dilemma that January because Douglas Copeland's latest novel had just come out, Miss Wyoming, and it wasn't going to be in the library for like a few more weeks, and I couldn't not read it like immediately. It was torture to know that there was fresh Copeland available and yet I could not avail myself of the fresh Copeland. I did not have a single penny in my budget to spare for anything. I absolutely couldn't afford to buy a book, especially not a hardback. So I went to Barnes & Noble and I bought a copy of Miss Wyoming with my debit card and I kept the receipt and used it for a bookmark. I drove home with my treasure and I very carefully read that novel, just like desperately trying not to get a single smudge on its pages, careful not to crack the spine or anything. And two days later after I'd finished it, I took it back to Barnes & Noble and I returned it so I could get the money refunded to my very sad and very distressed bank account. Anything for a fix, man. I have a vivid memory of lying on my futon with my dog Flame chewing on one of his toys down by my feet while I read Miss Wyoming and I had the radio playing quietly next to my head of like at the, on the arm of my futon because it was after 9 p.m. and Dark Entries was on. Dark Entries was a radio show that aired out of the college radio station at Western Washington University in Bellingham, or just Western if you're from the Pacific Northwest. It was a goth rock show, which was not why I listened to it. I had no interest in goth rock. I listened because I was wildly, hopelessly, stupidly in love with the DJ, Anton. When you two met, there was probably an early physical reaction, a romantic attraction that pulled you together. A love appeal that hits you sort of boing. Oh, his voice. It was beautiful. And he was even more beautiful to look at. Anton and I actually worked together. By night, he was a radio DJ, and by night, I was making my first absolutely terrible attempts at writing novels, and by day, we both were grudgingly employed at a call center for a cell phone company. Of all the shitty jobs I've had, and I have had many a shitty job, the call center one was definitely the shittiest. Call centers are soul-sucking. They are just awful places. I did manage to forge some nice friendships with some of my coworkers, though, and we made the best of a bad situation together. Anton was one of those friends I'd made at work, and I was crazy about him. <laughs> I was so attracted to him, he just exuded this coolness that was very powerful, very charismatic. You know, like he wore a leather jacket and he wore shades and he just had this air about him that, I don't know, it drew me in. He was also very, very nice, really. He was the sweetest, kindest person and very patient to put up with my dumbass hanging around him all the time like a starving puppy. He's seven years older than me, which isn't a big deal. But when you're 20 and you're just starting out in life, someone who's got a seven year head start on you, that feels like a big gap, you know? Eventually, I worked my way into Anton's confidences enough that sometimes he would deign to hang out with me, like just the two of us. And I remember one time we got to talking about books and movies and he mentioned that he really loved Dune. And I was like, oh my God, Dune is one of my all time favorite books. This felt so significant to me. I had never found another person ever in my life who cared about any book as much as I cared about that book. And I was like, I'm ready to marry this man right now because he understands why Dune is so fucking awesome. We went back to his place and we watched Dune together. It was hot. Um, we did fool around a little bit. The time we watched Dune and like a couple other times, I'm absolutely sure it meant way more to me than it ever did to him. And though he was always very kind to me, I kind of understood instinctively that I should never act like we'd had any kind of 
interaction that wasn't just platonic any place where anyone else could see. Because I knew, either either because of some vibe Anton put off, or maybe just because it was just the way things always went for me, but I knew that he wouldn't want anyone to know that we'd actually, like, been in bed together. I'm not the kind of woman you brag about, you know? But I did want to tell him, in some way, what he meant to me. Because I really was in love with him. It was the first time I'd been in love with anyone as an adult, and it just felt significant. Even if I knew it was never going to go anywhere because he was like so far out of my league and I was this awkward, unfeminine weirdo. So I saved up enough money that I could actually buy a book without having to return it. And I got a copy of Life After God, which is another one of Douglas Copeland's short story collections. And I took it up to Anton's desk while he was on a call with someone and I just left it there and walked away. I didn't know what else to do or how to say anything that I wanted to say to him. The clearest way I could think of to express anything I felt for him was with Copeland, <laughs> with that book. He was probably so confused. <laughs> I doubt he ever read it, and if he did, I'm sure he didn't understand the subtext of my message, you know? But I can still remember what it felt like to walk across the call center with that book, like my own heart in my hands, and lay it on his desk and walk away. I still remember exactly what that felt like, for sure. I did actually start out in a different PhD program um, because, you know, I'm fascinated by political judgment, basically, like how people look at an object or an event and decide, A, what does this mean? And B, what should I do about it? Right, because there's two steps to political judgment. This is my friend Alexis Turner. He's a historian and a PhD candidate in Harvard's History of Science Department, and he's currently working on his doctoral thesis, which is about the political history of LSD. Alexis is one of the smartest, wisest people I've ever met. He's always got a really interesting perspective on whatever's being discussed, and the ways in which he approaches a subject always make me stop and rethink my own assumptions and biases. Back in September, we talked about his history with history, and as usual, the conversation led to some pretty fun places. So I started out thinking I should be a political scientist, and nothing against political scientists, but they're very, very concerned with like intense, rigorous methodology and being as, you know, quote unquote, scientific as they can. And... This is just not, it wasn't a good fit. That's the nice way to say it. Which is not to say I, my work is not rigorous, but it's a different kind of rigorousness. And so I was kind of limping along in this program and eventually like not to put to find a point on it, but they kicked me out. They were like, you're not gonna be able to finish. <laughs> you know, you just, and I was really distraught and I, I did want a PhD though. And so I had to kind of bite the bullet and ask them like, am I just not cut out for a PhD? Should I not do this? And they were like, no, no, you can do a PhD, but you really need to go somewhere that's gonna let you have a lot more freedom to do your Alexis thing. 
One of the guys, actually, the way he put it exactly, he's like, now, I know that you probably think we're like Nazis with how rigorous we are, which was really something coming from him because he studied Nazis before. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, but honestly, within political science as a discipline, our program is really like pretty middle of the road in terms of like how strict we are about this stuff so you need to go somewhere that's really going to give you a lot more freedom and i was like okay okay but it stung getting kicked out i'm not gonna lie like my ego was pretty bruised and so i knew that i wanted to go into history of science because they're much more open to the type of way that i approach my work and i wanted to study what happens to politics when it meets science so i applied pretty broadly to programs that i thought would give me the flexibility to do what i wanted and i applied to harvard not thinking in a million years that i was going to get in like realistically i just got booted out of a program and <laughs> but the program just looked amazing and the people in it are like gorgeous writers that was one of the biggest attractions and i'm like all right I'm just going to, what the hell, I'm going to apply anywhere I think I would fit in and let them decide. And uh, But it was so far from my mind that when it, that it was going to happen that when I got the acceptance email, I had to read it like three times. And like I couldn't process the words, even though the first sentence, it was like, on behalf of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University, I'd like to congratulate you. And It was only when I got to the end and read the professor's name who had sent the letter that I was like, hang on, that lady's at Harvard. I mean, the fucking thing said Harvard in the first sentence. (laughs) But it just, it was such cognitive dissonance that it wasn't until I got to her name and I was like, she's at Harvard. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I'm not such a good person that I did not take a little bit of a petty pleasure in getting into like Harvard after I had to leave this other program in disgrace. But it was really the right move for me. And the program at Harvard, this particular program, is so interdisciplinary and really encourages students to pursue like whatever they want to pursue. And it was just such a good environment for me and what I needed. So I've been really happy for the most part since I've been here. That's really cool. I love that story so much that like <laughs> you get booted from one, you're like, God, what am What's going on with my life? If this e- is this even the path I should be on? And then just like throwing a wet noodle at the wall and it sticks on Harvard. <laughs> just love it. It's <laughs> so it good. And I, but truthfully, because of my previous experience, I wasn't 100% sure I would go. I actually had to go meet them all in person and be like, okay, these are people who I'm really going to enjoy working with. Like, I can do this. So, yeah, it, I definitely, like, failed up in this case. <laughs> Has studying the history of LSD opened your mind to anything about uh, history itself or about LSD itself? Like, has your perspective on what psychedelics are changed at all since you began this study? Or is it, or is it it's still pretty in line with, with your original assumptions or feelings about it? A little bit of both. When I picked the project, I'll confess I had never actually taken psychedelics. It was kind of an accident that I stumbled on LSD as a case study for thinking about political judgment. And I didn't undertake the project because I was a huge psychedelics fan. But I knew at some point in the course of the project to be able to talk about this intelligently, I felt like I should at least try it once. 
facts just so that I could better get into the heads of the people, in particular the people who were like evangelists about psychedelics. Like I just could not understand why they could be so convinced that it was going to save the world, some of them. And so I was like, well, clearly I have to try this because otherwise this just seems nutso to me. I didn't go out of my way to track it down. I knew at some point in the course of the project, somebody was just going to offer it to me. And sure enough, that's what happened. It was a, a, a professor was like, what do you mean you've never had it? This is unacceptable. You can't write about this if you've never tried it. And uh, so she invited me out to her place one summer when I was doing archival research and we hung out for a while and talked about our research. And then one day we did LSD together. <laughs> and uh, afterwards I was like, okay, I get it a little more. Like, I'm still not sure I agree with the people who think, oh, this is gonna like save humanity, but it makes a lot more sense how the experience could lead someone to that position like pretty easily. So I'm glad I did it for sure because I think it allows me to be much more a much more generous interpreter of the claims that people are making for this. I love a good altered state of consciousness, as anybody who follows me on Twitter knows. I frequently tweet while I'm stoned, and um, sometimes they're pretty entertaining tweets. Sometimes they're just stupid. Like, probably more often they're just dumb. But I do, I, I use altered states of consciousness a lot, and especially in my writing. Like, I, I love to write while I am in one form of altered state or another, I find it just allows me to tap into a completely different way of thinking about whatever it is I'm writing about, whatever my focus is at that point. Uh, something, if I, you know, no matter what method I use, whether it's cannabis or whether it's like really deep meditation or um, particular types of, of uh meditation that I have gotten into, uh, when I get into an altered state like that, it just like shifts the thing, it shifts the object of what I'm trying to do in my head in such a way that I can see new ways to do it uh, that I just don't notice when I'm, when I'm in my normal sort of day-to-day conscious state. So I, I think it's a really great tool for, for artists and creators, LSD, as well as, you know, anything else that allows you to get into a different mindset to work. I don't disagree with that. And for me, so I've ha I said I've had LSD once. I have had some other types of psychedelics more times. <laughs> LSD is not my favorite, but there are some others I enjoy more. And I don't tend to do work while in altered states, not even alcohol, partly because I feel like my brain is already so loose that I get high and I'm just like, I'm just going to sit in a hammock and meditate yeah. for the next eight hours. It's lovely, but no work happens. But what does happen is that looseness that my brain sort of already has. When I passed my exams in my current program, one of the things that the people told me at the end, they were like, you did great and you did terribly for the same reason. You're so creative and from a scholarly standpoint, it's exhilarating and we love to hear the ideas you come up with and it's going to make your work so cool. But occasionally in this job, you just need to say what people expect to hear. And this was kind of one of those times, but like, it's fine. You passed. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, but that state that I kind of already always have becomes even more pronounced when I take psychedelics. Yeah. And so in the moment, I'm not necessarily in much place to sit and do work or whatever. But when I reflect on it in the 
days or even several weeks afterwards, I suddenly realized like problems, for instance, that I've been gnawing over and little pieces that I could intuitively sense fit together, but I couldn't figure out how they might fit together. All of a sudden, it's like my brain rearranges itself a little bit and suddenly they fit really nicely and I see how to solve these problems that I've been chewing over. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for using altered states of consciousness in creativity, however you do it, like whether you do it while you're actively working or whether it is the type of thing where you go lay in a hammock for a while and and either, you know, transcendentally meditate yourself into that state or get high or whatever it is. I think it's important to to do that sometimes, at least if you're really serious about making very different and original stuff, or, or as original as creativity can be. I mean, I think all all things that are created are informed by something else that came before, right? Like nothing's entirely original, but um, but there are some things that are more original than others, <laughs> which I think we can all agree on. Well, and, you know, as, as a historian, I do have to be as truthful as I can be, right? Yes. I can't just make stuff up. But one of the things that I really deeply believe about politics in the U.S. is that we're stuck, Yeah. right? We just keep circling around and around and around these same problems over and over and over. And people have these very worn out scripts. The moment they hear something, it triggers a knee-jerk reaction and they just regurgitate, they just keep doing the same fucking thing over and over. It's totally infuriating (laughs) and we don't get anywhere. And so one of the things I do really want my work to do is say things that people can recognize as true, but say them in a way that's just different enough that it makes them have to stop and rethink how they've been talking about something or how they've been thinking about something and just give them just enough pause to open up a space for people to do something different for a change. Wow, that's a that's a lofty goal, but an important one. And interesting to me too that, that you are an academic and a historian and like so focused on factual work and yet you're bringing in these these highly creative aspects like you know you're bringing in essentially the craft of writing you're you're trying to add this like literary element to your work in order to get people to pay attention to make it like resonate with your audience that's smart i think <laughs> i may be biased but you know <laughs> You know, I I can spend years on this project, and if it's so damn boring that nobody reads it, what was the point? <laughs> right? What was the point? Um, but I also think that our society does not value pleasure enough. Yeah. Like, just having fun, just sitting and quote-unquote wasting time by having a beer and pizza with your friends and not doing anything else but just being social, for instance. And we're so hell-bent on making money and doing good and having purpose and whatever it is that we're focused on that we're miserable. And miserable people treat each other miserably. And so even if nobody gets anything else out of my book, even if they don't learn some moral lesson or decide to change how they're doing things, like maybe they will have at least spent six hours reading something that gave them pleasure. 
And even if that's the only thing that ends up happening, I would frankly be totally fine with that because I think people also need to remember how to just have fun sometimes. <laughs> and it does sound like your book is going to be very enjoyable to read. I'm looking forward to it like crazy. You've told me a little bit about how you've structured it with like separate parts within the research that line up with like the chakras of the body, um, which I think is so cool. Like what a fucking awesome way to... <laughs> <laughs> to conceptualize the history of LSD as this like like chakra journey up through the physical body and into the you know the ether of soul space or whatever like that's dope I love it <laughs> it's really cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean why not you know I I really want my research to change me and so coming into this project things like chakras or spirituality or any of this stuff I was just like I wasn't raised with anything like this and so it was just sort of amusing thing that other people did. And I, I wasn't allowed growing up to take anything like this seriously. Mm -hmm. But one of the benefits of doing a history of science degree and thinking about how we construct all kinds of knowledge, scientific knowledge, practical knowledge, knowledge inside academia, knowledge outside academia, religious knowledge, it actually gave me a much better appreciation for how empirically based a lot of spiritual systems are, right? Huh, we, interesting. We forget, that, we forget that in the U.S. because we're coming out of the Enlightenment, where because of literally centuries of war, religious wars across Europe, Enlightenment philosophers were just like, holy fuck, how do we stop making this happen and they very <laughs> consciously and intentionally said we have to separate science from religion and they made that political choice to do that because they hoped it, that it would bring more stability to Europe and we live with that legacy today where we think that science and religion are somehow not just separate domains at the time they made them separate domains but not opposed over time, though, we've started conceptualizing them as somehow being opposites. And scientific knowledge is empirical and true and real, and religious knowledge is completely faith-based. It's just whatever you want it to be. It's totally subjective. It's not based in anything real. And cultures that never made the choice to tear those things apart, they're, it's not like they're just making it up from nowhere. Their spirituality is often often comes from observing nature. Well, that's empiricism, right? Yes. <laughs> and so when I realized that, it allowed me to really start taking some of these systems much more seriously as ways of thinking. For which, even if I get nothing else out of getting a Harvard PhD, like that alone is totally worth it because it allows me to much more charitably engage with other people's ways of being in the world. Yeah, wow. That's that's valuable in and of itself because for someone, you know, like both of us, like I'm sure the majority of the people who will listen to this podcast raised in a, a tw late 20th, early 21st century Western culture, we don't prioritize that. We don't prioritize engaging with other people. <laughs> we are a very like dominating culture that's like, we're the best, suck it, you know? <laughs> 
And what a gift to be able to sympathize with and engage with people who think differently from the way we've been raised to think, you know? I mean, I think you can you can gain so much on a personal level and you can you can hopefully educate your own culture so much with that kind of mindset. One would hope. I mean, one would hope. Oh, sometimes though I wonder whether that's even worth it or if I'm just going to eventually be one of those people who sort of like walks, you know, walks away from Omelas and finds some other culture to be like, I just kind of like this one better, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm sort of at a crossroads where it could go either way at this point. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I um I liked what you said earlier about how it was a very strategic and conscientious political decision in the West to divorce science and spirituality. It was. And a lot of people don't know this. A lot of people today just think like, oh, yeah, like, like you were talking about. Religion and science are opposites and never the twain shall meet and we're supposed to keep them separate. I don't think that's true. I think, I think maybe it was kind of dumb to like fully cut them off from each other because now we got all this weird shit happening. Like, you know, the government's acknowledging that UFOs are something. We don't know what the fuck they are, but there's weird shit flying around in our airspace that we can't identify. And maybe there is a spiritual component to that. We don't know. Like there's something whizzing around in the skies. Science can't explain it yet. Uh, maybe we have to reunite science and spirituality a little bit in order to find the answer to the question of what these aerial apparitions are that show up and fuck with our nuclear weapons and stuff. <laughs> like, literally, people will think I'm crazy. If you haven't followed the UFO news, like the legit news about this. I have not. Oh, okay. So a lot of people haven't. A lot of people just, they see UFO in a, in a headline in the news and they brush it off. But like, this is legit, you guys. This is such a big deal. Like the, the government last year 2021 in july 2021 finally acknowledged they're like yeah ufos are real they have been all along since 1947 we've been documenting weird shit flying around and uh we just kept it quiet all this time and now we're making all these congressional you know panels to investigate it and figure out what this is this is real congress now has a ufo division it's called uap unidentified aerial phenomenon so now they have like they're devoting resources to figuring out what the fuck is happening in the skies. <laughs> Cause like, I don't know, nobody knows what these weird things are, but they're real. We know they're there, you know, and they can do things like, like, like uh, exceed the speed of, of, you know, our fastest current jet planes and stuff like that and move tr through transmedium travel so they can travel in the sky and in the water with equal ease. And, and we got to figure out what this is obviously. Cause we don't, you know, it, it could be potentially a security threat. So like, Maybe we need to reunite science and spirituality in order to get to the bottom of how these things are working. What are these objects? Are they objects at all? Or is it some sort of like mental projection that humans are capable of doing? Like, we don't know any of this shit. We got to find it out. I maybe am surprised about the UFOs being real part, but not surprised about the, and the government knew and like kept lying to oh, yeah. people and didn't say anything. And it's actually one of the things that's been hardest in my research, having to figure out who's bullshitting whom. <laughs> it's actually really hard because for political reasons, there are a lot of reasons that people say one thing in public spheres. And this isn't even like just some big government conspiracy thing, even ordinary people, right? They yeah. say one thing when eyes are on them and they say something else when they're in private with their friends, right? Uh -huh. And there are a lot of reasons for that, both 
dark and conspiratorial and also just like, oh, I don't want people to dislike me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But when you are talking about government research, it, it makes it hard sometimes and government messaging and also pharmaceutical messaging, right? They have good reasons for advertising the good stuff about their drugs and not the bad stuff. And, yeah. And so trying to get to the bottom of like what's real and what's rhetoric is really tricky. I have no idea where the hell I was going with it, damn it. That's okay. That's that's what this podcast does. Um, but, uh, oh, I remember where I was eventually going to go, and I'll probably skip some connecting part, but um, maybe we would have to get spirituality connected to that again to pursue it. I, I think we might need to to pursue it well, but that said, I would be fascinated, and I hope they do pursue those questions. Um and oh, speaking of that, that's where I was going with it. Speaking of like the difference between what you want people to think and what you say in public and what you don't say in public. I know most academics would never admit this. Like, oh, I maybe aliens are real. I hope they pursue it because like it makes us look crazy, right? Oh, you can't possibly say that. How's that scientific? And I'm like, look, we all have different relationships to science as an authority. The thing I love about science is that I'm just really, 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 really fucking curious. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, but I don't have any real stake at the end of the day in people thinking I'm some big super expert or not. I don't actually care. Yeah. I just want to answer the (laughs) questions. And so if something comes along that I can't explain, I'm just going to want to know the answer. (laughs) Maybe it's out in woo-woo land. I don't care. Like... I still want to know. Maybe the woo-woo land is real. If it is, I want to know. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say no from the beginning. You know, And that's one of the things that I find with some of the scientists I'm stu- I study. They're really good at that. And they're like, I'm going to withhold judgment. I don't know. Uh, and other ones are just like, oh, I'm not even going to go down that road. And But I think that that different relationship to knowledge is it says a lot, right, about a person. It also limits where they may or may not go. I agree. I, I do think it, it says a lot about how a person's mind works and, and how they prefer to think about reality. Like, is reality concrete? Is it ultimately entirely knowable? Or is there an element of mystery to it? Is there some aspect of reality we will never be capable of knowing? And I think different people have different levels of comfort with that thought that maybe, maybe we can't actually know anything about anything. <laughs> like maybe it's all just a bunch of weird shit and no one knows what's going on with anything. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have a little thing that I, um, I probably shouldn't admit this in public in case God forbid this goes viral and then everyone knows my secret and it stops working. But um When I really want to be able to know and understand how a person moves in the world. So I have this theory that people are constantly trying to shape the world around them to look like their version of heaven. People want to live in a better world. And so their, their actions are constantly, both consciously and unconsciously, they're always trying to craft this around themselves. And so if you ask a person, what does heaven look like to you? And be like, you know, set aside your religious beliefs or disbelief or whatever. If there were a heaven that could look any way at all, 
Like if you were the person building heaven, what would heaven look like? And you know, most people just, they don't realize that this is actually a really profound, revealing question. They think it's like a party question and they will tell you the answer. And when they tell you the answer, I think it tells you almost everything you need to know about how they move in the world. Interesting. And so I'll go ahead and since I've said that, I'll, I'll say that, you know, when I envision heaven, it is this sort of infinite universe that you're just with friends and you're just exploring it eternally. And that's it. Like every day you go on an adventure and you learn something new and Ideally, the goal is to, you know, learn all of it eventually. But since it's infinite, you never actually learn it all. And you just do this into perpetuity. I mean, that sounds awesome to me. <laughs> sounds really cool. Yeah, no, this is like, like, I, once you know everything there is to know, there's nothing left to do. And then it's just fucking boring. <laughs> right. So I, I love the idea that it's endless. Yeah. And that there's always something to keep doing right that's i don't know if i've ever really not since leaving mormonism anyway i don't know if i've ever really thought about what heaven would be like because i didn't i don't really believe in heaven as in a place that our souls go to as as as, you know an ego as a still intact person um i think we just sort of return into the the giant overmind and become that again and who knows at that point i don't know (laughs) i don't know what happens after i don't really sit around and think about it because i'm like i don't know you die you go back to this this giant singular consciousness and then (laughs) i don't think my stupid human brain is capable of of knowing what happens after that but maybe we are i don't know maybe we make our own afterlives i mean i can't answer that question i think anyone who tells you they know what happens after we die is uh doesn't actually know what they're talking about. Oh yeah, for sure. In fact, I actually just talked about that with with another guest recently, that anybody who claims to know anything about divinity, anybody who says anything other than, I don't know for sure, but I think, (laughs) is is pulling your leg and probably trying to consolidate wealth and or power (laughs) by by doing it. (laughs) But yeah, I don't think we're capable of understanding that stuff. I just don't think... You know, humans are, we are pretty advanced, obviously, but also we're still just biological primates, you know, we're, we're carbon and electrified goo and a bunch of chemical reactions. And like, that's not really that fucking cool in the grand scheme of things. Like there's a lot we're capable of doing. Humans are pretty amazing animals, but also we're still just terrestrial animals. And I just, I don't think we're capable of understanding the like animating life force that is moving through all of existence it's just a, why try <laughs> i don't know maybe 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 we are I, if we are capable I, like obviously that's on my list of the things i have to try and figure out if i can i want to know all of it you gotta i do think that there is this weird paradox in most people's desires is that like the thing they want as soon as they get it they don't want it anymore so i say i want to know it all but if i knew it all then i would be like oh i'm bored there's nothing left to do i might as well die now what i what i really actually want is that there's always something still left that i don't know that's that's the perfect state, I think, because it keeps you curious, it keeps you engaged, it keeps you working for something in the world. And 
I like that. I don't, I don't want to ever have all the answers, you know? I want to keep trying to find what else is out there. That's what makes life interesting. It's fun. Yeah. Have you ever read um, Anne Carson's Eros the Bittersweet? No, I should. Oh, this, is a, this is a lovely book and was actually, interestingly, one of the books that sort of started leading me down this weird woo rabbit hole. It is a quasi poet. It's the first thing she published, I think. It was based on her dissertation, actually. Oh, wow. And um, it's about the concept of Eros in ancient Greek thought, specifically, and mostly she's drawing on sapphic snippets to it together mm-hmm. and um one of the things she says is that eros is about it's a verb it's about reaching for the thing you want but it can only exist as a desire as long as you never actually reach the thing you want and, but the moment you collapse the distance between you and the desired the eroticism goes away because you have it Ah, oh, wow that's it, that's profound. I need to read that for sure because like the one constant throughout my life from the time I've been like conscious enough to be aware of it is eros, just like desiring stuff. Like I I am I appear to be made entirely out of longings and nothing else. <laughs> like that's just what I do in this world. It seems to be what I meant to write about too cuz like all of my books are about that in one in one shape or form and it's just this topic I keep returning to over and over and over again like I can't find enough ways to explore wanting and not having. So, yeah, I'll have to check it out. I mean, that's the that's the idea that behind this is that's what moves you is not fullness, it's a sense of emptiness or lack or of something that you're missing. And that sensation actually is the engine that propels life forward. I love that. I'm definitely going to read that book for sure. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. And it's, it's you know, re- it definitely gets into some, like, woo mystical stuff, numerological stuff about, like, the number three and triangles and the emptiness at the heart of a triangle. That's that's interesting, though, because that is, like, triads and um, triangle shapes reoccur repeatedly in culture in western culture like in art you see it all over the place it, it's clearly not just west yeah that's true i mean i i can only speak to west because i haven't really studied the art of any other any other cultures but um from what i know like triads are just this repetitive thing like we are so drawn to them um as humans they they compel us in this really strange way and um it's interesting to think about i'll have to i'll have to check that out for sure I mean, I don't mind stuff going a little woo. I'm okay with woo, obviously. <laughs> I'm not, honestly, I'm not 100% sure I'm going to stay in academia, which is why I'm totally comfortable being, being like, yeah, let's just take the gloves off and tell Libby all about the woo shit that I've gotten really fascinated in lately. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you might as well. Listen, I don't think there's any danger that this is going to go viral. If it, if it's like, if this podcast turns out to be like the rest of my career, it will be very mediocre in its reach. <laughs> but honestly, this is how I've managed to survive academia is by not being afraid of what people are going to think of what I say and just doing what I want to be doing and what's fascinating and interesting to me. And I wish more people would live this way because I think we yeah. honestly live in a much pleasanter world if people could just 
trust their gut about what makes them happy yeah and be like i should do that thing instead of constantly focusing on all the things that i hate or all the things i'm afraid of or all the things that make me mad or all the things you've been told to be yeah that shit is noise stop my god please yeah find the thing that erotic passion that pushes you forward yeah and just do it right and so yes i if you had told me 10 years ago that i would be going down some hippie ass woo rabbit holes i would be like what are you talking about libby this is oh me too (laughs) but here we are (laughs) and i'm not sorry it's fascinating it's like this whole part of the world that I just totally ignored in my life before. And like, I knew it was there, but it was meaningless to me. I didn't hate it or dislike it. It was just invisible. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, like starting to sort of pull the curtain back a little bit and think about what it means to have those sorts of understandings of the world and being able to exist in a world where you don't just... See, we often talk in the West, again, because of that science religion split, we often talk about the woo stuff as belief. Well, he believes that, he thinks that, like it's all in your mind. But I actually think that people who really fundamentally live their spirituality, I think it actually phenomenologically changes their physical and emotional experience of the world. And that's become fascinating with me. That's part of what drew me into thinking about chakras more to what thinking about the degree to which we actually embody our knowledge and our knowledge and our set of beliefs physically change how we experience the world. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I mean, that's something that I've done myself in the past, like, six or seven years of my life, where I just, I had a series of very weird experiences that I could not explain rationally, just fucking weird shit happening to me. And I, it just kind of like, uh, as we say in, in the ex-Mormon community, it, it broke my shelf. Like I, I kept putting, you know, weird things would happen and I would put that, that thought of, boy, that was weird onto this little shelf of like, I'll deal with this later, you know, or like (laughs) eventually I'll find the rational explanation for this and then it will make sense. And those things just piled up so much that the shelf broke and I was like, fuck it, the world's weird. Reality is not what I think it is. I can't explain this. I can't. I don't have the knowledge for it and maybe no human does. And I just have to embrace that things work differently from the way I've been told to believe they work. And um, since I embraced that and and started like very intentionally practicing my spirituality and, and incorporating spiritual beliefs into my work, into the way I run my business as a writer, everything changed. Everything changed. Uh, in very direct and very traceable ways to where I've been able to say, I did this, and as a direct result, this this reaction followed within my career. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very open about that on Twitter. Like people know, if you follow me on Twitter, you know, like I practice ritual magic. I know that magic is real. It's not like Harry Potter magic, obviously. Like you don't wave a fucking wand and, and shit flies across the room at you. But what it is, is a, a different way of looking at reality in such a way that you can take hold of reality and turn it to your own advantage. Like you can you can shape the, the immediate reality that surrounds you in certain ways that, um, that change the way people look at you in turn. 
Like, you basically, you can put on a glamour, essentially, where you can say, this is what I am. Like, you can proclaim with words, this is what I am, this is what I do, and everyone else around you goes, yep, and then they all make it happen. <laughs> like, once everybody else starts believing the story you tell, then the story becomes objective reality. Yeah. Well, and what's fast, one of the things I'm fascinated by at the moment is how even just the words you use affect that, right? Yeah. So... Right now you're calling that magic. So I'm sure that there will be listeners out there who are like, this is horseshit. Yeah, of course. Magic isn't real. It is horseshit. <laughs> but those same people, if you told them the phrase, hey man, fake it till you make it, they'd have zero problem recognizing that that is in fact how things work. You fake it till you make it. You just walk into a room. You act like you belong there. Yeah. And everyone is like, well, I guess this guy belongs here, yep. right? And then they just roll with it. And it's so frustrating to me that if you don't use the exact right word, like if you say, well, I think that's magic, everyone's like, you're crazy. And But if you change it into slightly more recognizable language, everyone's just like, oh yeah, we all know that. Why are you telling us this boring thing, Alexis? Everyone knows that's how it works. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Like Like it is in some ways... Magic has never left our culture from the time when it was, you know, kind of intentionally stamped out by colonizing forces. You know, you go back to any native culture far enough back, no matter, you know, where your ancestors came from, there was some form of nature-based magic that everyone was practicing. Some means of communicating with nature spirits or with ancestral spirits to change your immediate reality. Like everybody, everybody does magic, you know, if you go back far enough. And then, you know, colonization happens, people make war on each other, everyone tries to stamp each other's shit out, whatever. And it eventually, you know, mostly becomes lost, but it does hang on in the form of adages like fake it till you make it, you know, like it's, it's still in there. I, mm -hmm. There's a friend of mine on Twitter. She's also a writer. She's constantly, constantly telling this story to herself and to other writers that other people are in control of her career and that she needs to fearfully appease them in order to have what she wants. And I keep telling her, like, you can just stop telling yourself that story. Like, it literally is that simple. I know it seems like it's too simple to, to work that well, but it literally is a matter of no longer telling yourself I am dependent on someone else's approval of me to have the life I want. You just say, I don't depend on that. Maybe like 75 to 90%. There's, there, is, there are also situations where you walk into a room and what you want is, you know, either contrary to what someone else wants or, you know, I was reading your book recently on uh, narrative outlining the uh, take off your pants book, right? Yeah. And you say often the antagonist is the person who wants the same thing as you. Yeah. Right? I, there are situations where you walk into a room and you're like, I'm going to get this. And someone else is in the room and they're like, oh, I'm going to get it first. Oh yeah, for sure. There are absolutely situations where like you can will what you want, but you're still not going to get it. And I think this is one of the most horrible damaging things about racism, right? For instance. Yeah. Is... A person can do all the right things and they walk into a room and they're like, I'm going to grab this bull by the horns. This is mine. And they, but they walk in the room and they're the wrong color and everyone in the room just cock blocks them. Cause yeah, for sure. Right? And so I, I, I agree with you that like the majority of the work is going in and saying, this is what I want. But there are other reasons that you may not be able to manifest everything you want. 
right? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. There are forces that will come up. You will come up against forces for sure that, that sometimes, you know, you can't shift out of your way. You can't find a way to go over, under, or through them. You have to find ways to go around them instead. And, um, but that might mean that instead of saying, you know, I want this, this singular goal and it has to look this one specific way, instead you have to reconceptualize how you see that goal. Like, is, you know, in the case of myself and my friend on Twitter, who I'm always telling to change her narrative, is what she really wants to be published by this specific publisher and to have this specific type of an experience as a writer? Or is what she wants to be able to pay all of her bills as a writer and write professionally? Those are two different things, right? Like, if she's only focused on, it has to look this way, it has to be this exact image of my goal, I'm not going to consider how this image can expand to encompass more, um, then yeah, you're going to have, you're going to run into a lot of antagonists and you may not be able to make it work. And there will be other people who you have to appease and who you become subservient to. But if you change the way you describe that goal, it opens up other pathways for you. Sure. So for example, like one one way I use words, uh, when I got the idea of doing this podcast, because I am trying to, like after reading, I'm going to make a little diversion here. Boy, I'm going to have to do a lot of editing on what I'm mouth diarying at you right now. But <laughs> so recently there was um, a hearing uh, to determine whether Penguin Random House, two like amalgamated publishers, were creating a monopoly. And like, what a dumb fucking show trial. Of course they are. Like, everyone knows the entire publishing industry runs on monopolies, right? Um, over the course of this trial, I was reading the transcripts with just, like, this rock in my gut. Because everybody at these publishers that were testifying were all admitting that no one in publishing understands how to make books sell. They don't know. They don't know how to make books work. They don't know how to market books. They don't know any of this shit. They don't know any of it. They're just taking 75% of authors' money because because they can, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. And um, made a lot of things about my recent experiences with publishing make sense for sure. But then I was sitting there thinking like, I'm not going to work in this fucking system. Like, boo, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hitch my wagon to people who don't even know what the hell they're doing and know they don't know what they're doing. Like, I will use them for my goals, but I'm not going to be a part of their goals of just like milking my talent for money while I joylessly crank out a bunch of books that will be commercial but won't carry any artistic message. I was like, nah, fuck that. How am I going to change how I do this? So I looked at my Twitter bio and it said, I write books and then, you know, info about my books. And I said, hmm, I don't write books. I tell stories. That frees me from the structure of books and publishers. Suddenly, if I conceptualize myself as a storyteller, not as a book writer, I don't need anybody to make books for me. And as soon as I did that, I thought, oh, I should start a podcast. <laughs> I should bring, I should bring storytelling in a modern uh, medium, in in a medium that reaches more people, that like goes out and finds my audience and brings them to me. Because publishers just admitted they don't know how the fuck to do that. Well, I do. I got friends who are very successful podcasters. Look at what they're doing. Why can't I do that? So I was like, all right. And so I hit edit on my on my Twitter bio and wrote, I tell stories and saved it. And I was like, there you go. My words have changed and now my reality has changed. <laughs> so that's how you do it. And, you know, it remains to be seen. Obviously, this is the first season of this podcast. Who knows if it'll ever find an audience? Who knows if it'll take off? It might not. If it doesn't, I will find another way to bring my narrative to its audience. It's how I roll. I approve. I love it. <laughs> 
This is something I try to get a lot of other students in academia with me to be able to do is they let themselves get trapped in the idea that the only career they can possibly have is as a professor and nothing else will do. And it's like, why? What, what do you actually want, right? Do you want to be a professor or do you want to be able to nerdily research the hell out of every random bee that flies into your bonnet, right? Or do you want to be a writer or do you want to be a teacher? Like what brought you here in the first place? And if it's not actually that you need the prestige of being a professor for whatever reason, like there are a hundred other ways that you can actually get what it is you want, but you need to be really clear with yourself about what it is you're actually after. Yes. And it's amazing to me how few people have actually done this, like really sort of taken a step back and asked themselves whether the goals they have are actually their goals or if they've misstated their goals. Yeah, it's an important question to ask, I think. What do you really want? Like, what what do you want? I want to share my ideas with other people. And hopefully, hopefully, if I do my work well enough, those people will take those ideas and use them to make positive changes in the world. That's what I want. It does not require books to do that. I love books. I love the written word. I love the fact that I am good at creating sensory experiences inside people's brains with just shit I type on a screen. That's cool. I like that. I'm good at writing. I'm very good at it. I know I sound like a dick saying this, but it's true. I'm fucking awesome at writing. So (laughs) um, I love that I have that skill, but it's not the only way to use words. And once I realized that, it unlocked this for me to where I was like, Oh, I can end run around Penguin Random House and anybody else I want to. I can turn this into a more equitable partnership for myself to where if I build my audience independently of any publisher, suddenly any publisher who wants to work with me needs me to reach their goals. You know, like I don't need them. I'm not subservient to them. I have the power now because I have a direct line to people who want what I do. So like, you just have to change the way you talk about it. You have to change the words you use to describe your reality and yourself. And that shifts the reality itself around you. That is what magic is. I like this idea of magic. I, I do sometimes think that you hammer a little heavy on the words. I think there are, <laughs> there are other forms of magic too, I think. Yes, but, there are. <laughs> but, it's, but I would say the thing it starts with, and in a sense, this is word-based, I suppose. I would say it starts with the question. Mm. I mean, it's even there in the root itself, right? Questing. Right. The question that you're asking, the thing you want to know or have directs which way you go, right? And, and how you pursue it and what you get. And so, like, if you phrase the question wrong at the beginning... You're going to run off in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, part a, little, part a little bit of why I don't emphasize the word quite as much as you do is that I think sometimes our questions are felt yeah. more than articulated. They don't necessarily have to be articulated in words. That's a very good point. And, and I agree with you. I actually, I am going to be talking to at least one visual artist on this uh, podcast too, which I'm really looking forward to. And she tells incredible stories with 
just imagery. Um, and I can't wait to talk to her and like really dig into her process and everything. But yeah, I think you're right about that. There, there are different ways of communicating the feelings within. Words are just one way. There's, you know, sound, music, you know, um, there's visual, obviously. There's all kinds of shit we can use to, to express. I had a great conversation recently with a woman who, um, she works with scent. Oh, really? And she, um, she mixes perfumes and whatnot together to evoke certain landscapes or historical moments. Wow. Um, and the way that she was describing the process, I had a moment where I was like, this is magic. It's smell magic. And she was working with a historian of like a garden historian, a historian of agriculture and horticulture, I should say. So they would look at these paintings. The woman is Indian, and she would look. They would look at these paintings, ancient Indian and medieval Indian paintings of gardens, and he would identify what the various plants were, and then she would take this knowledge to try and create scents of what the garden might have smelled like, and then she would pair these together with the painting, and maybe objects that appeared in the painting, right? Maybe there's a chalice or a necklace or something. And they were putting together an exhibit where you would be able to be sensorily immersed in the landscape through smell. It was fascinating. And, um, but yeah, as she was describing it, I definitely did. I had this moment where I was like, holy crap, this is a kind of magic that I never would have thought of you know i mean people witchy types use essential oils and this and that and the other thing but this was a very different way of conceptualizing that that suddenly made it much more interesting and alive to me what a fascinating project like i gotta i gotta check that out if i can if there's any way to do it yeah she has she actually has some of it i mean obviously you can't get access to the smells online but um, she does she does have uh, some stuff online about the exhibitions. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. It's what an interesting uh, what an interesting project to devote yourself to. Yeah, it was fantastic. And actually, let me. Um, her name is uh, Barthi Lawani, and uh, the exhibition is called Bage Hind, and it's spelled uh, B A G H dash E H I N D. That's two words. Yeah, it was a it was just such a creative, fascinating project, and um, and she was running into some interesting historical problems in the course of doing it, which is like some of the plants are like virtually extinct now, and so you can't really get pure sense of them anymore because there's not enough of the plant left to get essential oils, and so she'd have to figure out from historical sources like what it kind of smelled like and then try to recreate the smell or in other cases there might be like a specimen somewhere and she could go smell it but then she'd have to go mix other scents together to try to capture that particular scent and it was quite fascinating
There is a coda to the Anton story, if you can believe it. Sometime around, uh, let's see, like 2014, 2015, my friend Mariana, who's always been really into food and is an incredibly talented pastry chef, like, if you enjoy looking at pictures of beautiful cakes as much as I do, go check out her Instagram, which is Cake It Nice. She's awesome. Anyway, she texted me and said, hey, I've got an extra ticket to Alton Brown's live show. Do you want to go with me? Yeah, Alton Brown, the celebrity chef. I had no idea that chefs even did live stage shows, but I'm always up for a new experience, so I said yes, and we went, and the show was amazing. It was super fun, very energetic and weird, and just, it was great. We had a great time. Anyway, at one point, Alton said he needed a volunteer from the audience, and, you know, he picked someone who was seated much closer than Mariana and I were. And as this person climbed the steps to the stage, my mouth fell open. It was Anton. Even from across the Paramount Theater, I knew it was him even before he opened his mouth. And yes, like when Alton Brown said, hey, what's your name? And he gave it, I was like, holy shit. I haven't seen him for 15 years, but like there he was. No denying it. Of course, he'd changed as much as I had in 15 years, but my heart still like skipped a beat to see him. <laughs> like all the old feelings came rushing back. I mean, I wasn't still in love with him, but I still had such an intense affection for him and... I don't know, it just made me so happy to see him again and to have found him again in such a funny, unexpected way. After the show, I googled him and I found his email address and I sent him a note saying, Hi, do you remember me? And I was like, I saw you on stage at the Alton Brown show. That was weird. And like, I'm glad you're still out there and doing well. So, you know, we followed each other on social media, whatever. And we just started rekindling this nice little friendship from there. We're not like close friends, but we're friendly with each other, you know? And I'm glad for that. It's really nice to have someone in my life, even peripherally, who knew me during those years. Cause I barely knew myself then, you know? So one day, a couple years after we reconnected, probably shortly before the pandemic began, I had some reason to be in Bellingham. Uh, I can't remember why now. I think I had a doctor's appointment or something, like some specialist thing that I couldn't do on the island. So I contacted Anton and I said, hey, I'm going to be in town for a few hours. Do you want to grab lunch and catch up? And he said yes. And I did, you know, whatever it was I was doing in Bellingham. And I killed a little time by walking around all my old haunts and like seeing how much the place had changed. Stuart's coffee shop was gone. So was the apartment above it. And I still wondered what would have happened to my life if I had lived there. I made it to the restaurant and I got there before Anton did. And I ordered a beer and I sat there drinking it and just like wondering what we would even talk about. Like, we were both so different now. And he showed up, and even though he was in his 40s by then, and he was wearing jeans and a sweatshirt and no shades, he still looked so much like the 26-year-old in the leather jacket, the one I'd been so hopelessly in love with that I'd given him a Douglas Copeland book, because it was the only way I could think of to tell him what he meant to me. We caught up. It was a little awkward on my end. Like, it was strange being back in Bellingham where I'd first begun taking hold of my reality and shaping it to my will. And I was more or less at the other side, you know? I'd achieved most of the desired outcome. 
I had made myself into a professional novelist. I was writing fiction full time. And now, like not the time I caught up with Anton, but now I'm even living in British Columbia, just like Copeland. And even though I had no way of knowing whether I had succeeded in doing to other people what Copeland had done to me, I could say that I was a bestseller and I was enjoying some real success in my career. And there I was in the place where I'd started it, looking across the table at this man who'd been such a focus of my thoughts and my energies back then in those like years of my genesis. Anton was still there and I was there. He lost most of his hair and he no longer had the physique of a man in his 20s and I'd gained at least 30 pounds since he'd seen me last and I was going gray and developing a dope set of jowls and some rad under eye bags. But we were both just smiling at each other, like so genuinely happy to be in each other's company again after so long apart. And even though I wasn't still in love with him, I felt such a tenderness for him and for myself. And such gratitude that he'd had the grace back then to be patient and kind to this awkward kid who'd been so obviously and stupidly in love with him. I was just so glad we had lunch that day. He's a really good person. I don't know what I've done to deserve so many good people in my life, but my life has been full of the most beautiful, loving souls. Whatever's out there, whatever force of divinity animates this world, it has been very generous with me, and I am very grateful for that. I can't remember most of what Anton and I talked about now, and really the conversation itself wasn't the point. The point was just to circle back to where our adult lives had begun and look back at ourselves, like looking at a couple of strangers on a distant shore, and feel the assurance that even though it was tough to be that age, because it's always tough being young, everything had turned out all right for both of us in the end. And at one point there was this lull in whatever conversation we were having, and Anton just looked at me and he kind of shook his head and he said, you know, I always had a thing for you. I didn't, I didn't even know how to answer that. Like, I certainly had no inkling at the time that he felt anything for me beyond the kind of friendly tolerance you'd feel for a dog wagging its tail against your leg. <laughs> but as I traveled home from Bellingham that day, I realized that what's really important about love is the act of loving itself, not the reception of love. I don't know if I'm saying this in a way that conveys the point I want to make. Um, if love is real, then it's enough to give it. As much as you may long to feel the love you give reflected back at you from the object of your love, it doesn't change anything about what you're giving, you know? Real love feels complete and satisfying and right merely as something that is given. It needs no reciprocation in order to be what it is. So I used to hate the fact that I would fall in love so easily with like everyone, but now I'm really grateful that this is who I am and that this is the way I was made. Because even though the love I give has rarely been reflected back at me, a life in which I love as many people as possible is still a life that's full of love. And that's exactly the way I want to live. Like, what else is out there? What's at the root of all that's good and true and transformative, if not love? Mature love has something of the other kind of love in it and something more. It's tender, unselfish, cooperative. When I get serious about somebody, Mom, I want to have that kind of love.
that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Please be sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review since that slaps the algorithm around and helps me find more curious weirdos like yourself. Follow my guest Alexis Turner on Twitter at SurlierTexan, where he occasionally posts the most amazing and interesting stuff about the history of LSD, among many other fascinating tweets. And if you want more from the inside of my head, check out my novel The Prophet's Wife. It's probably not as good as anything Douglas Copeland has written, but it is the best thing I've ever made, and I really wanted to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collage components came from the YouTube channel Old TV Time. The musical interlude was Stranger on the Shore, written by Bill Acker and performed on the trumpet by Safi Wahid. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds.